DiscerningHearts.com presents Climbing Higher, Going Deeper. I'm Chris McGregor, your guide through the spiritual landscape of some of the 20th century's most profound writers, whose voices resonate powerfully in today's world. In our current series, I'm joined by Vivian Dudrow to delve into the life and works of Gertrude von Lefort, a German author known for her novels, poems, and essays. Her work, renowned for its depth and artistry, beautifully intertwines timely, thought-provoking ideas with a refined yet accessible elegance. A Protestant of Huguenot descent, von Lefort's journey to Catholicism profoundly influenced her writing, infusing it with rich theological insights. To enhance your journey, we invite you to check the show notes for essential highlights, study and reflection questions, and additional resources. So join us as we embark on this illuminating journey through the compelling world of Gertrude von Lefort. Welcome back, Vivian. Thanks, Chris. Happy to be here. The Eternal Woman by Gertrude von Lefort, the book that we're exploring, trying to break open, not only for others, but primarily for ourselves, right? Because it's so, so good. As we begin this next section, the introduction, which is really only two and a half pages, two and a quarter pages, uh, we want to emphasize the importance of reading it, taking your time with it. Theologians, God bless them, but there are some who will use that theological verbiage to kind of weave something that Unfortunately, it doesn't really speak or communicate the central truth clearly to all of us. And my frustration with the idea that you have to dumb down things for people in theology, which I think is an absolutely horrific way of approaching it, I think it's almost diabolical in its nature because it presumes a pride, like somehow we have this knowledge that we have to, and the poor masses don't understand it, and so we have to dumb it down for them. And it's so pretentious, when really what we're all called, including them, is to speak, to elevate our verbiage, to be like our master, Christ Jesus, to be able to communicate the truth in a way that he does, and is spoken about in the scriptures. So it's clear, it's simple. It's like St. Paul said, it's a simple thing. And I believe that's what Gertrude von Lefort does here. I mean, she's very precise, but I think it's important that this introduction be understood by all of us. But I don't think she's doing that kind of lofty theology talk. No, she's not doing that lofty theology talk, but her writing is very dense. And so it's understandable if you go slowly and prayerfully and listen to what she's saying. And so it's not like she's talking in all this, like you say, stuffy academic language or whatever. I mean, she is trained in philosophy and so on. So occasionally she'll say something that we might want to unpack for the reader, not because it's difficult to understand, but because she just assumes a lot of background behind what she's saying. And I'll give some examples as we go along in the introduction. But by the way, every time a person picks up a book, a person should read the introduction. It's actually one of the most important parts of the book. Because along with the table of contents and along with the conclusion. And yes, sometimes the forward too, because the forward is written by someone not the author, 
that might help you get context for why this book is being republished and that kind of thing. But the, the author's own introduction and conclusion and contents are very important for understanding where's this author going and why. Now, in her introduction, she's talking less about where she's going with the book and more about what she's doing in the book. What is she talking about in this book and what is she not talking about? And it's really important to get that straight, which is why it's really important to start with her introduction. Thank you, because I think even this first sentence that's in the introduction is really important to unpack, because I think what she's trying to do is help us to remember and recall the way that through an anthropology of people, us, back then, we understood certain things, even at the time of Jesus. And I don't want to say the ancients. I'm just talking about the in the apostolic era, even 500 years later to 1,000 years later to even 1,500 years later, the way that people spoke, understood things, and as they were communicating important truths, especially when it came to understanding male and female and those basic tenets, there was an element, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump ahead a little bit, but in the symbol that we have lost. And we kind of talked about that last week. We didn't, touch, we didn't talk about it explicitly, but when we were discussing the forewords, that something happened in the 1800s where a lot of that was just thrown out the window. So what Gertrude von LeFord is doing, now let's go back and remember what symbol is. And I think she's approaching that in this very important first sentence it's like a good maternal nurturer. She's reminding the kids, now let's recall the importance of what this type of thinking is to our understanding about a, a much bigger universe. That's right. She is ta- she's telling us that this book is about the symbolic aspect of male and female. And the book focuses on the female, but... The symbolic aspect, meaning that if if your starting point is that God, there's a God, he created the physical material world, and he communicates through what he creates about himself, about who we are, about our eternal destiny, and all these things. But the only way he can communicate invisible things to us is through symbolic language and she explains what is a symbol it's a sign or an image through which ultimate metaphysical realities and modes of being are grasped not in an abstract manner but by way of a likeness now we use symbolic language in our lives all the time we use things to describe other things you know we say Oh, his tears were like raindrops, or those raindrops are like tears. You know, this kind of thing, right? We, we talk like this. Poetry especially is a very, is almost entirely symbolic language, but we talk like this all the time without thinking about what we're doing, because how else can you convey an invisible reality like sadness unless you use things that are like sadness, like rain, being like tears. This is how we talk. This is how we think. Okay, but why 
Is that harder to do now than it was in previous ages, as you said, Chris? Because, as you said, in the 19th century, uh, the philosophical movements of that time, first of all, they no longer believed in God, the modern philosophers. They no longer believed in God. They no longer believed in a creator. They no longer believed in a creation that speaks, in a creator who speaks through creation. They saw creation as simply randomly moving molecules that have no meaning outside themselves. This was a complete turning over and upside down the way human beings used to think about the world, that it was loaded with meaning. And the way you grasp that meaning is, as she says, by way of a likeness. Okay, so when you think about the Catholic faith, the Catholic faith is all about symbolic language. What is a sacrament? It is an outward sign communicating an invisible reality by way of likeness. So take baptism, okay? Baptism is a cleansing of the soul from sin. So what do we use when we baptize? Oh, we use water. Because we use water to wash our clothes and we use water to take a shower. We understand that water is a cleansing agent, right? And so we use water to signify an invisible cleansing. You know, the water isn't washing the sin off of our souls, right? It's an invisible action that's taking place and it's represented by a physical outward sign that we all understand. We all understand that water represents all these things in its symbolic aspect. And it's been sanctified you know, in, the, in the blessing of the water. So much more that we, in the invisible, the calling down of the spirit, which in itself is invisible to us, but it's being manifest and we, we recognize it because of symbolic language in symbols, it's it's not a it's not a diminishment. What's a symbol of love? A kiss, and that engagement. It's a caress. It's a an embrace. It's so much more. It has a depth to it, and it points to something much deeper in itself. So symbolic language again, one of the primary symbols, and it speaks about this in the Catechism too, is God reveals Himself in His creation. So that's why we're, our breaths are taken away at a glorious sunrise, because there's something that transcends that action of the universe, of the earth spinning around and seeing. There's something that hits so much deeper at the dawn of a new day and at the end of a day. We could go on and on and on. We're not going to go sentence by sentence from the introduction, but it's important for her to state in this book this book is an attempt to interpret the significance of woman, not according to her psychology or her biological or historical or social position, but under her symbolic aspect. So that when you go into the deeper truths about what is female, what is male, what is Mary, what are we as women, and what are the guys as men, and how they blend, all these things, the conversation she's going to engage us in is going to be one that comes from that symbolic aspect. She lets you know, and it's a good thing, because once you dive into this book, you begin to see with eyes that are very revealing, 
and gaze in a way that we don't currently, I think. Yeah, because we have all those mantles of this is the psychology and of the bi- biological and, and that's what and all that's gotten very confused and all very messed up but the symbols still remain true that's exactly right so two things here i want to bring out one is god when god created man in his image male and female he created them that means that god is communicating something about himself in creating us male and female this is the important point that she's getting. This is what she means by metaphysical reality. She's not trying to use a big word to impress you. She's simply saying there are realities beyond the physical. And we can't even understand the physical if we don't understand those. Okay, so here God creates. He creates in his image, male and female, he creates. Somehow he wants to communicate something about himself by our being male and female. And now just think about, we're going to get into all this later, but just think about all this language in the Catholic Church. Jesus is the bridegroom. The church is the bride. Okay, so already now this male and female modes of being are being used to express something about God's relationship with us, our relationship with God, not women's relationship with God. No, mankind's relationship with God is bridal, is nuptial. Okay, the other thing I want to bring out that you said, you used the word kiss, and I want to jump on this because John Paul II, in his Theology of the Body, he is completely in alignment here with what Gertrude von Lefort is saying, that the symbol has its meaning whether we intend that meaning with the symbol ourselves or not. And he actually uses the example of the kiss in his Theology of the Body, he says, what is a kiss? A kiss is a symbolic gesture to show what? Love, affection, friendship, uh, romantic love. You know, kisses, you kiss babies. We, we, we kiss each other. We, in France, they kiss both sides of each other's cheeks, you know. So the kiss means all these things. It means all these things, whether when we kiss, we mean them or not. And he uses as an example, Judas's kissing of Christ. And he says, because the kiss has this symbolic meaning, what Judas is doing with that kiss is lying. Because when he kisses Christ, he's doing that to betray him. He's not doing that to show his affection for Christ, his friendship, his loyalty, and all these things. No, he's actually kissing Christ to do the exact opposite, to identify him to the people who've come to arrest him. So he's using a kiss to betray Christ. In other words, he's using the symbol to do the opposite of what the symbol means. And everyone knows the truth because we all know what a kiss means. We all know that this symbol has a meaning beyond something that we can change. And that's why it's diabolical, because the influence of the enemy is the father of lies. And he's also diabolical to the extent that division. And that is the problem that the introduction of this lie has caused our culture. He's used this confusion and the lie to twist it all around. And what I think Gertrude von Lefort is doing in this book, she's bringing us back to basics. It's not theologies, my new word. She's bringing us, she's saying, hey, kids, remember, let's go back to basics. 
about right. what is it symbolic, what is the meaning that's contained in this. And you will end up having these incredible aha moments because they're so intrinsic to this nature we've been designed into, the image of God, that we will go, aha, I knew that, but I didn't know I knew that. But I knew it. You know, it speaks to that. We are less uh, confident in what we actually really know is because modern philosophy and modern science has pulled the rug out from under us. It presupposes there's no meaning to anything. It's all meaningless or it's whatever meaning you want it to have. Just make up your own meaning. It doesn't matter. All meanings are relative. So we're very uh, unsteady on our feet now. We're very, we're very unsure of ourselves because, oh, is this just my opinion? Is this just my meaning? Because I'm making up my own meaning. Dare I have such confidence in the meaning of things? Are, do things mean anything? Is it just all a big meaningless mess? So she's doing us a really important service by recollecting us to, oh, that's true. That's what an aha moment is, right? It's when you recognize the truth. Oh, yes, that's right. I knew that. I forgot I knew it because I was under this barrage day in and day out that I can just make up my own meaning. I can make up myself. I can cut off parts of my body and make myself into something else. There's no creator. When you were speaking even about a term like metaphysical, I think for me, an understanding that is real simple about metaphysical is that it, as you said, it's kind of beyond what we can comprehend or we can physically see. And we speak about this in our creed. We believe in things visible and invisible. We say it every week. It's a part of who we, we say we are. So what, what's a, maybe a possible example of that? Well, I can go out. I live in Omaha, Nebraska. I can go, drive 45 minutes and I'm out in farm country And when it's dark, it's dark. And all I can see is what's in front of me in that headlight. I can't see all the activity that's happening on the ground, the plants that are growing, the bugs that are there, the animals that are foraging. I can't see any of those things. I kind of maybe know it, but it doesn't mean that they're not happening. And I have been told, and just from my own experience of the daytime and coming into that night, I can kind of comprehend, but I still can't grasp because there's so much more that's happening than what I can physically see and possibly even comprehend. And that's why it's problematic when man says, we know everything. I think, therefore, I am. That's helping to understand that invisible, as it were. And helping to understand the activity, that's why God gives us this type of creation and these symbols, because this becomes a part of our everyday reality, and it helps to point ultimately towards him. Well, that's right, because the whole purpose of his creating us is to be in a relationship with us. He created us to be in communion with him. Well, how are we made out of matter in communion with invisible spirit? which is what God is. And so, well, to communicate, he uses symbolic language to communicate with us. And if we rob the symbols of their meaning by saying there is no meaning, we're literally cutting ourselves off from God 
speaking to us. Well, and we are symbols. Our bodies are symbols. We're part of that creation. So the female who is created and as a receiver, just by our very nature of our genetic makeup and the way that our bodies are designed, we are receivers. And then through the nurturing of our bodies to the children that will come, we have the design of giving and nurturing back physically. Women are receivers and they're, they're givers. And this, by the way, is what man, male or female, is made to do. Receive from God, bear fruit, nurture that fruit to growth, and so on. We're all supposed to be doing this, whether we're men or women. But because of the woman, woman's body, as you just said, she symbolically represents this aspect this kind of fruitfulness, this kind of receptive and then fruitfulness and so on. This is what her body symbolizes. It both does that biologically, yes, but symbolically it goes beyond that to something universal. Even Jesus himself, All think of all the symbols Jesus uses to describe the spiritual life, the life and journey of the soul, the seed that has to go into the ground and die in order to bear fruit, or the mother hen collecting her chicks Jesus says, would that I were that mother hen able to collect these chicks. Jesus is using symbolic language all the time. All of his parables are symbols, the sower and the seed and the, the, the house built on sand. And I mean, every single parable is basically a symbolic story that's speaking about something about us and our relationship with God. And so it's important to understand, and, and Gertrude von Lefort brings this out, the bearer may fall away from his symbol, but the symbol itself remains, as we were saying with the kiss. And so it's important to understand that even though a woman bears this sign in her very body of, of the religious aspect, meaning man's relationship with God, the word religion means to bind again, meaning to bind us back to God, right? So the woman symbolizes how this comes about. How do we bind ourselves back to God? Oh, by listening, by obeying, by letting that word bear fruit, okay? But as she says, it does not follow that every woman is religious or that women are superior to men in this respect. Anyone who would think that that's what she's saying is, quote, a misunderstanding of this book. We need to be very careful as we go forward and as people read the book, she's not saying that all women are religious, that women are more religious than men, and so on. We can see all around us that that's not true. What is she saying? She's just saying that the sign of the woman is the sign of the religious nature of mankind and the religious relationship of man to God. Well, how is that, that sign? Well, she's going to unfold this more and more. We'll return to Climbing Higher, Going Deeper in just a moment. Did you know that Discerning Hearts has a free app where you can find all your favorite Discerning Hearts programming? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Monsignor John Essef, Deacon James Keating, Father Donald Haggerty, Mike Aquilina, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, and so many more. They're all available on the free Discerning Hearts app. Over 3,000 spiritual formation programs and prayers 
all available to you with no hidden fees or subscriptions. Did you also know that you can listen to Discerning Hearts programming wherever you download your favorite podcasts, like Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Spotify, even on Audible, as well as numerous other worldwide podcast streaming platforms. And did you know that Discerning Hearts also has a YouTube channel? Be sure to check out all these different places where you can find Discerning Hearts Catholic Podcasts, dedicated to those on the spiritual journey. Hi, this is Chris McGregor here to encourage you to check out the show notes for essential highlights, study and reflection questions, and additional resources for this episode you're listening to right now. They're offered to you freely by Discerning Hearts. We hope you'll take this opportunity to study for yourself or to share it with a group. And if you have any questions, concerns, or ideas, be sure to leave the comments in the com section of this particular posting. Now, back to our program. We now return to Climbing Higher, Going Deeper. Can I go back to that first sentence again? I'm not digressing. I'm just reminding everybody. The first sentence, don't forget, just like as you said, she's not talking about the psychology or the biological. Now, like what I just said about women, look at how they're designed. I'm not speaking about the biological as much as I'm speaking about what the symbol of me represents, about the aspect of God, okay, as the receiver and the giver. Because she said she didn't want to do that, the psychological or biological, her historical or social position, but under her symbolic aspect. So she goes on to say that there are men, as you said, we're, and when she just starts to describe what masculinity is, about how men are that symbol of the heroic. Do you want to break that open? Well, if God created us in his image, then that what that means is that we have attributes of God. And so even though we tend to categorize them along sort of gender categories, like we think of courage and bravery and those kinds of things as sort of masculine attributes, right? But everyone is supposed to be brave. Everyone is supposed to be courageous. It's not just men are supposed to be courageous and women are supposed to be cowering in the corner. No, women are called to be brave too. And some women are called to be brave even in a very masculine aspect like Joan of Arc, who leads an army into battle. So we want to say that while things become visible symbolically in a masculine aspect or in a female aspect, we don't want to say, therefore, men are like this and women are like that. Or in the case of the heroic, the truly heroic man, the truly great man is going to follow what used to be called the code of chivalry, protecting the weak, protecting the frail, protecting the poor, not slaying an unarmed enemy, showing mercy. Okay, this was the code of chivalry. In other words, this is the code that made a man a gentle man, a gentleman, right? The man who holds his strength in check. Well, we think of these characteristics, caring for the poor, caring for the weak, as female characteristics, because those are sort of motherly characteristics to just want to bring to you yourself the little ones, right? Well, men are called to do this too. We need each other to signify things, but then we need to realize I'm called to be both brave and motherly, the man is called to be both brave and motherly too, in his own way, under his own aspect. And so these sexual differentiation that God has put into creation is supposed to help us understand ourselves 
not just on a physical plane, but on a spiritual plane. She does talk about that. This is precisely what the two forms of masculine life that are the greatest in symbolic significance uh, demonstrate. And she's talking just about what you were talking. She's talking about the masculine element. You can look at a man and he's designed as a symbol of all that, the bravery, the courage, because they have the strength. They are designed, their bodies are created in such a way to demonstrate symbolically that aspect of God. And women are created symbolically as an aspect because of their fertility aspect of what it is to be a female. So while she's saying, I don't want to talk about the biological aspects of woman, she means, I don't want to reduce this conversation to that. What I want to show you is what this does symbolize about ourselves and about mankind and about God and about our relationship with God. So you, you have to talk about it, the biology, but you're not reducing it to biology. Does that make sense? Oh, I'm glad you inserted that. It really did. Because she'll talk about, for example, I'm going to quote her again, thus a St. Vincent de Paul, man and priest, takes in the abandoned child of the stranger to his heart as a woman would. And she uses other examples, and she will, because Vincent de Paul, in his masculinity, also demonstrates that feminine nature, the nurturing maternal, which is also a part of who he is, but it doesn't make him female. He's demonstrating an aspect of the image of God. Exactly, because even God, if male and female somehow communicate God, then that maternal love is somehow something situated in God as well, right? Which is not, I'm not trying to say something heretical here. I'm just trying to say, look, it's, he's the one who said it. I created you to be like me. I want you to be like me. And, and how am I going to help you to do that? Well, he gave us the sign of the sexual differentiation. But then on top of it all, he took flesh himself and became a man like us in Jesus. This is the ultimate symbolic language. When is it Philip who says to Jesus, when are you going to show us the father? And Jesus says, if you look at me, you see the father. And then look at how many times Jesus acts motherly. Like I gave the example of the hen and the chicks. But how about when he brings the children, the apostles are shooing away the children. Get out of the master's way. He's got, he's got stuff to do. And what does he say? No, let the children come to me. And he picks them up and he embraces them and he kisses them and he blesses them. And he says, let the children come to me. Well, I'm putting in scare quotes, you know, feminine, because it isn't feminine in the sense that it diminishes his manhood. <laughs> so this is one of the ironies of our current times. On one hand, people have pushed back against strict gender categorizations that have actually done a kind of harm or violence to people's individuality on one hand. And then on the other hand, now what they're doing to children is, oh, you're a girl who likes sports? Maybe you're really a boy. Or, oh, you're a boy who likes to dance or color? Maybe you're a girl. They're saying it's not division, but that you've just done that. You're not allowing them to blend their different aspects into the way that God designed them to and be. And it's not supposed to be androgyny where men and women look exactly the same, do exactly the same. No, men and women are not the same exactly. 
They have these differences. But if we were to say that only women are to be gentle and only men are to be brave, what kind of men and women would you have? You're right. She brings forward the great prayer that we offer up for Our Lady, the Litany of Loretto, and she points out how you can be both. We pray this. For example, in the Litany of Loretto, we call Mary Mystical Rose, very feminine, beautiful. She's most mother of hope, mother of mercy, of grace, so many things. And then we call her the Tower of David, the Tower of Ivory, the House of Gold, the Gate of Heaven. And those are all beautiful, but they're very strong masculine images. Well, I'm so, I'm so glad you brought up this, because this is, of course, where Gertrude von Laporte uh, leads us at the end of this introduction, and it's going to be, she takes it up in the next chapter, the first chapter, that Mary is not just the ideal woman, she's the ideal human being. She's the ideal creature. She's the ideal disciple. And and not because she's a woman, okay? We're not saying, therefore, women are the ideal disciples. Not at all. What we're saying is that Mary's yes to the creator and her sign of womanhood is all wrapped up in her yes to God. She's the handmaid of the Lord. She's the one who receives the word of God, receives the message from the angel, says yes, bears the fruit of God's word in Christ into the world, okay? All of that is part of her very much tied up with the fact that she's a woman, but she's also symbolically representing what every disciple of Jesus is to do, to hear and accept his word, to say yes, to do it, to bear fruit so that Jesus enters the world through us so that when people see us, they see Jesus. Okay, and it's not an androgyny. It's not, oh, women should be priests. No, 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 no. There are distinctions and they're important. In fact, if you were to blend and blur all the distinctions and all the roles and all the identities, it's like, have you ever tried mixing all colors together? What do you get? Like muck, like like just muddy muck. You don't have any color at all, right? No, so... Just because we can emulate as woman masculine attributes and men can emulate as men feminine, again, I'm putting a scarecrow, attributes, attributes that God has made that symbolically speak to us, doesn't mean men should be women and women should be men. In fact, if you stop being a man or stop being a woman and try to be the other, you're only going to cause confusion and ultimate madness. We need each person to speak the word God has created him to speak. Okay, now that was just two and a quarter pages on this introduction. But you can see where this good holy woman, Gertrude von Lefort, is trying to take us in the eternal woman, the timeless meaning of the feminine. And as we come to a close on this introductory piece, Vivian, I just want to remind our listeners and viewers that whether it's on YouTube or within the podcast post, we're going to have a series of reflection questions that will kind of allow you to dive in a little deeper on what we just talked about. We encourage you to pick up a copy of The Eternal Woman, if you haven't already, for the timeless meaning of the feminine. That Ignatius Press has been great. They gave us quite a discount so that you can get the book. Just get a copy of it. Start reading it. Just let it sink in and remind you of those, aha, okay, I knew that, but I didn't know I knew that, but I know that. She's trying to re introduce into this culture 
a language that has been spoken for millennium. I mean, just over and over again. Let's get back to that and and then help our children to understand. Well, I you know what? I don't think we have to help children. Children already get it. Right. We have to stop harming them with this ideology that sexual differentiation is arbitrary. It doesn't matter. And we can just rearrange all these body parts the way we want and make ourselves what we want. No, that is idolatry. That is taking out of God's hands what belongs to God alone, making ourselves gods. And what do we end up making? Frankensteins. And let's begin to look at the symbol that God has made of us to witness to the world. Let's begin with the relationship of faith. Okay, Father, you've created me. Help me to know and do your will. And together, it's amazing the transformative action that can happen, not only within ourselves, but in the family, within our communities. Uh, The fulfillment of all of our desires can be met there. So... Again, until next time, our producer, Katie, is going to be watching all that, bringing those forward to us, and we will have discussions about this. And we're going to begin to have some live discussions down the road that you'll be able to participate in, but that's down the road. We're just getting this, this introduction going. Okay. Thanks so much, Vivian. All righty. You've been listening to Climbing Higher, Going Deeper, as we've been discussing the life and works of Gertrude von Lefort. To hear and or to download this conversation, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com, or you can find it in the Discerning Hearts free app or wherever you find your podcasts. Be sure to check out the show notes for this particular episode for essential highlights, study and reflection questions, and additional resources. We hope this will deepen your engagement with Gertrude von Lefort's spiritual and theological contributions. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission, which is to offer authentic and rock-solid spiritual formation freely to souls around the world. And if you feel us worthy, please consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible, to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope you will tell a friend about DiscerningHearts.com and join us next time for... Climbing higher, going deeper.